I'm Professor Laura Empson. And I'm David Morley. And welcome back to Leading Professional People. In this series, we bring together cutting-edge theory and first-hand experience to offer in-depth insights into the unique challenges of leading professional people. And in this episode, we'll be exploring the question, what is collegiality and how does it actually work? And we'll be speaking to Jill Ada, Chair of Aegon Zender, which describes itself as the world's leadership advisory firm. They specialise in areas such as executive search, board succession and board advisory work. I've worked with Egon Zender for many years and one of the most remarkable things about the partners is the emphasis they place on collegiality. The concept underpins their governance structure, their remuneration systems and their recruitment process. But there's also an interesting ritualistic performance to some of this. So, for example, although the chair is elected by the partners, they always elect the person who's been groomed for the role by the outgoing chair. But back in 2018, Jill did something unprecedented. She launched a rival leadership bid and won the firm's first ever contested election for chair. And a commitment to collegiality was at the core of her campaign. So this question, what is collegiality? I've never really thought about it that much, Laura, in spite of it being a word I've heard pretty much every day in my professional life. It feels like a slippery little critter. Yeah, it's one of those loose and baggy concepts which professionals chuck around without really thinking too carefully what it means. Or perhaps worse still, assume that everyone else thinks it means the same as they do, which can be pretty risky. Yeah, collegiality, it's often held out as something partners should be, one of those intangible things. It tends to be pretty hard to pin down. Maybe it's around the ability to respect people's points of view, especially if you don't agree with them. Or maybe it's something to do with fit, being prepared to sacrifice yourself for the greater good. And management scholars use the concept just as loosely, and it's attached to a variety of concepts like values, governance, decision-making, authority and culture – But academics haven't really examined it systematically, at least not since Max Weber. Well, I'm not sure what Max Weber says about this, but in my experience, practitioners tend to confuse collegiality with the idea of collaboration. Um, But I think that collaboration is a far narrower and more strictly commercial concept. It does feel to me like collegiality can encompass something much more profound, maybe more meaningful. Yes, it, it definitely goes deeper than collaboration. I've been researching collegiality for a while now, and I've identified three core elements. So collegiality is about mutual support, about equality amongst peers, and about cultural cohesion. It's about all of those things and how they combine to create something special. So first, this idea of mutual support, it implies a willingness to go out of your way to help colleagues through their most difficult times. It implies there's something bigger and more significant than either you or your colleagues to which you collectively contribute. Uh, Does that mean it's being willing to, for example, carry the load of a colleague who's not performing to standard because you're all in it together? Yeah, absolutely, David. Uh, You get that. Um, Because this can be so strong in professional firms because people join straight from university, work up through the ranks with a cohort of colleagues until they're admitted to partnership. But in the process, these strong bonds of collectivity and reciprocity develop over many, many years. They do, but I think there's a danger here because that can create a situation where you get a sort of free riding by individual partners who are not performing, who are not pulling their weight. And in my experience, that can create a real 
resentment and demotivation throughout the partnership, particularly those who are overperforming. And if that underperformance or, and, and sometimes even poor behavior are allowed to persist, then that absolutely snuffs out the power of collegiality. It ruins it. The other thing I've also noticed in practice is that often the partners who complain most about the lack of collegiality from their fellow partners are typically not the big hitters. It's typically the people who are average or below average in terms of overall performance who tend to complain about the lack of collegiality from others. Of course, they might argue that they are contributing vital things to the firm, vital to the maintenance of collegiality. And they might be right. But that brings us on to the second aspect of collegiality, equality amongst peers. This is what the term collegiality actually originally referred to. The collegium was a term used in the Roman Senate with its practice of requiring two men to occupy each magistrate's position. The idea that this would prevent any single man gaining too much power and making a bid to become emperor. Okay, so in a partnership, by sharing ownership amongst multiple people, the idea is that you prevent anyone from abusing their power, either by trying to control their colleagues or by free riding on the efforts of their colleagues. Yes, and that's why collegiality and partnership are so closely associated. But finally, we also need to take account of this third element of collegiality. Collegiality is cultural cohesion. Or, put another way, collegiality is cultural control. This is the most intriguing and elusive component of collegiality because it's encouraged through careful selection and intensive socialisation of professionals and thereafter through this combination of formal and informal controls. So you mean how you reward compliance and punish transgression. This sounds a little bit spooky. I'm thinking of those ant colonies where they basically execute any ant that's a maverick ant. You definitely don't want a maverick ant. Bad idea, bad ant, bad But you do need some grit in the oyster. Oh, ants in oysters, I'm (laughs) I'm itching all over. Um, So the kind of formal controls are about how you reward and punish behaviours. But the informal controls are every bit as powerful because there are informal ways of rewarding and punishing people. These powerful social control mechanisms create these kind of self-regulating professionals. And that's why professional firms are able to run so effectively with this fairly light touch formal management. And that in turn makes it possible to maintain this assumption of equality amongst peers, which encourages professionals to believe that they're free to behave autonomously. Cultural cohesion again links back to equality amongst peers. Yeah, I get that. But, uh, you know, cultural cohesion taken to extreme can be highly exclusionary. The focus on fit potentially filters out all those who don't conform to the established norms. And I think that can be a weakness. Absolutely. And it can give rise to the worst excesses of groupthink. Because as professionals engage in a kind of collective organisational narcissism, and we all know what can go wrong when that happens. Jill, good morning. Lovely to have you with us today. Great to be able to talk to you about this topic of collegiality that's very important in professional services firms. Maybe we could start, Jill, by just asking you to talk a little bit about the firm and the size and so on. Um, So Egon Zender is a leadership advisory firm. So we've done leadership and search for, for many years. And we've got 68 offices in 40 countries around the world and about two and a half thousand uh, colleagues in the firm. And Jill, when you took on the role, apparently 
you've said it was the collegial atmosphere of Egon Zender that convinced you to take on this job back in the mid-90s. How did that manifest itself? What made you believe that it was collegial? It's the reason most of us join and stay, I suppose. Egon introduced something called the World Tour. And uh, you meet around 30, even more, (laughs) uh, colleagues from different offices and practice groups. And it's not that more interviews lead to better predictive power of the interviews. It's that we're really testing for fit to culture and values. And what it means is you've almost done your induction before you start. So once you sign up, you get this flurry of amazing messages from all over. And the collegiality is there. The support for you already exists. And it I could feel it. And we still all feel it today when we have new joiners. So for you, it felt like, you know, a warm, supportive feeling. I mean, how many people really are prepared to go through 30 interviews in order to get to that stage? I mean, do you get a lot of people dropping out during that process? Great question, Laura. Um, No, we don't. And it's a big ask of people if they're in other employment to do that. But I suppose it's like an infectious engagement that they just want to keep coming back and, and doing more. And you know, even Egon, who's now in his 90s, has, uh, has still interviews candidates when we're not in lockdown. So it's getting to know each other and it makes it feel like it's the right destiny for both sides. So it's a kind of seduction. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard it called that before, but yeah. <laughs> what is it, do you think, Jill, that's What's at play there? What's driving this kind of sense of collegiality that you're describing? I mean, we were set up in 1964. Egon left one of our competitors to set up a different type of firm. And it was based on values and collegiality or collaboration at the heart of it. So he set up the firm to be one firm. So no silos um, by countries or practice groups, no hoarding of candidates or clients. No one owns a client or a candidate. And that's very different to our sector where most people are paid commission. So from day one, that's how we were founded. And it's it's just who we are. You know, you have to nurture that. It doesn't just keep going. So you have to talk a lot about values and, and why they're important. But for clients, they're important because we promise them that we will search the whole world with no silos and they can access everybody's knowledge and for candidates, you know, they, they don't want to be hoarded by one person. They want to be have the opportunities open to them. And, and the same for colleagues, you know, our promises that we're a collegiate professional home. So it, it just feels the right thing to do, David. And when we stray from it, it's really obvious. It sticks out like a sore thumb. Do you find, Jill, that that model is under more and more pressure from your more aggressive competitors offering big packages, for example, to your star partners? Yeah, I mean, it's one of our disadvantages. We we will not do lateral hires as partners. So we're seen by some firms as a great training ground, and then they'll uh, they'll come in and take our, our, our people. But we won't forsake values for growth. During the pandemic, I mean, we, we made a very clear decision a year ago. As a board, we said um, we will not restructure We will not take any of the monies available in terms of furloughs. And we will not lay off any staff globally. And so for colleagues, they have that psychological safety to say, actually, my job's fine. And and the whole point of it was really be here, be fully present for our clients in their hour of need. 
and you feel safe so you can be creative, you can be bold. Uh, but we will not forfeit colleagues. You know, that in over the last year has increased our engagement scores and our market share. But to your point, we're now at that danger point where um, competitors might come in and having done all their restructures, they want to uh, poach. So I want to dig down into some of the things you've been saying because they're absolutely fascinating. I'm really interested in how you go beyond talking about values. I mean, once someone has joined the firm, how do you continue to socialize them and, and encourage them to understand and embody the values in such a sort of mutually supportive firm? I mean, do you have difficult conversations? Yes, and I think we've got better at that, Laura. I mean, so we do a lot of a lot of training in, in person and teamwork that really is fundamental to how we do our business. But it's how we gather and what we talk about. And a few years ago, well, it was about seven years ago, there was a bit of a myth about everybody joins Egon Zender, they're terribly happy and healthy, they stay till they're 62, they're not scarred by the realities of life, and, and it, it wasn't, it, it just wasn't, uh, wasn't the truth. So we started um, doing what we call our Voyager programs, which is taking um, groups of about 24 partners off for a week and really getting to know ourselves and each other in a very different way. And people were nervous at first because they said, you know, if I, if I really disclose everything, people aren't going to like me or respect me. And it was completely the opposite. And so we got such intimacy. And then you can have really difficult conversations. Um, and we've been doing that for our future partners just before lockdown. We had everybody together, the 520 consultants globally together for our 100th partners meeting. And, and we did the same for them. Um, and that makes a huge difference. And more recently, we've done quite a lot of work on a language around polarities. So we can talk about, well, you know, these are the apparent trade-offs, you know, performance or values. Well, no, you, you can't trade them off. It has to be both. But we've taught ourselves how to have those conversations, and it's really helpful. I remember when I was interviewing people in your firm, and um, various people talked to me about it being a really feedback-intensive environment so that, you know, after meetings with clients, it was really natural to sort of just be able to turn to someone and say, you know what, I think you slightly mishandled that question and, you know, basically giving each other notes. And, and it reminded me of the conversation I had some years back with um, Tony Hall when he was CEO of the Royal Opera House. And he said he couldn't believe with ballet dancers, you know, they'd come off having given the most heartbreakingly beautiful performance and immediately ask for notes to be told how to do it better next time. I got the sense that you know, in so many professional firms that the feedback opportunity is, is full of stress and anxiety and you guys seem to do it sort of more naturally, almost like ballet dancers. Well, we're not, we're by far not perfect um, and it's always a big challenge to, you know, work on feedback and we have a way of giving feedback that, that works. But because we work together for so long, there is a little bit of hesitation of holding back at times because you want to like someone, you want to be collegial. And so we call it candor with care and, and really try and get people to do it for developmental reasons, to give each other feedback, because that's the only way we grow. So we're getting better all the time, but it's always an uphill journey. Candor with care, I like that title. The crunch point on some of these things often comes when you come to talk about performance, 
particularly at partner level, where you can have a conflict between what's good for to maintain collegiality and values and what might be good for the business. How do you go about resolving that particular conflict? I mean, is it a tough place to stay at the top? We don't have any stars. It's not a star culture. So almost if people start acting as though they're the superstars, you know, they, they sort of get their wings clipped. Into <laughs> oh, uh, out of interest, Jill, how would someone clip someone else's wings at Egon Sander? <laughs> Probably it would be a conversation about are you being as collegial and in- inclusive. But one of our values is generosity. When you have a value about generosity, it's really helpful because if you are doing really well as a rainmaker, you're being generous. You're bringing other people in. You're giving them credit. So that's the uh, accolade, I suppose, that we all want. But David, your point on measurement is really important. And it's, I think, a constant struggle in any professional service firm. How do you get the balance right? So we look more for um, team performance rather than individual performance. We downplay individual performance. We record it, but it's downplayed. We don't have any league tables or anything like some of the uh, professional service firms. And we got a behavioral guide, which we call what matters most. And that's all about behaviors. And so that really is the thing. So if you're going to get promoted to be a partner, elected to be a partner, that's what you're going by. For all of us every year, it's that. And then Last year, we introduced something which was really interesting on apprenticeship, which at the heart of apprenticeship is collegiality and generosity. So now when we're doing the annual reviews, we ask people, who were the best apprentices for you? Who's helped you learn and grow this year? And then we actually publish the people at the top of that list. And that's very meaningful in the firm. How do you deal with what some people might call the free rider problem where you know, when it's all about the team, there's always going to be some people in the team contributing more than others. And if that gap gets too large, then that can create resentments. How do you deal with that? So a few years ago, this was before I was chair, we were having lots of questions about, is our model still the right model for the future? And I think that was at the core of it. There was something about fairness, which became a big discussion. So so we did a whole review and all the partners were involved. And in the end, we'd looked at gates, we'd looked at all different types of other tools that professional service firms, and we had a vote on the lockstep model. And, you know, we had a 99% vote in favour of keeping our lockstep model. And as you know, in partnerships, it's hard to get a a vote like that. Um, But it was really good because we had the real discussions. We had the real debates. Um, Because we don't do lateral hires, that probably makes it easier for us. Jill, I want to pick up on something when you were talking about the votes and earlier you talked about the partner conference and I want us to explore this sort of third dimension of collegiality. So we've been talking about mutual support and we've been talking about cultural cohesion, but really the third element of collegiality is also about equal voice as well and equality of power in that sense. I'm fascinated by the way that your partnership conference works. Can you explain how is it possible to have a meaningful partner conference with so many partners in the room? Well, first of all, we have a model of one partner, one vote. That helps. So it doesn't matter how long you've been here, new partners, we want to hear your voice as much as anybody else's. And I think that helps the cross-generational collegiality. 
Remember, we're still only 264 partners. So, you know, we can all fit in a room. And we have a chair of the partners meeting who runs that. The chair of the partners meeting is the only other elected role within the firm, isn't it? Uh, Also, we we have um, the partner election committee. So partner candidate evaluation group is also elected. Sorry. So you elect people to these really key kind of cultural positions of chair CEO, chair of partner meeting and partner um, But we'd never approvals. before elected a chair properly. We'd always had one candidate who was CEO and we'd all been expected to put our hand up. And I think that was what happened in 2018. And it was really uncomfortable for all of us. None of us felt, uh, felt at ease in this. And it was hard. And some partners said, you know, this could split the firm. Uh, It could have been the start of an unravelling, and and it just wasn't. Um, As soon as it was done, partners just rallied, never thought about it since. And I think there's something about, in professional service firms, keeping the concept of servant leadership. And, And they want to be served, and they want to have some leadership in that. So it's both words. But I think that all came about because people didn't think they had enough voice and choice. Um, and I think you only have vibrancy in a partnership if you have voice, choice and transparency. But I think most professional service firms have probably struggled over the last year and not being able to get people together physically in one room to have those meetings, Laura. And also because to really respond to what was also an economic crisis, we've all had to tighten the ship a little bit and be a little bit more centralised. Even we, with a very decentralised model, have been more centralised this year in terms of previously having a hiring freeze because we couldn't save everybody's jobs if we were also just bringing lots of people in. So we did not stop hiring consultants, but we did stop hiring our support teams. And so, you know, that's been very important. But you get to that point as, we, as we've as we got to now when, you know, partners don't want to have any sense of centralization. And so it's like a tipping point. And we're, we're trying to sort of make sure everything's getting back to how it should be. So We've had two electronic partners meetings and I've just sent a note out to all the partners saying, can we gather in small groups of just eight with Ed and I, Ed's our CEO, and no agenda. We just want to listen. So I think you have to change as you go along and respond to what's happening. So listening is probably the the most important trait for a, a chair at the moment. Over the course of this conversation, what I've been really getting a sense of is the dynamic flow of leadership within the firm. So the firm as it was, the firm as it was starting to become and how people were uncomfortable about that, you making the bold choice to challenge tradition and put your name forward as a rival candidate, in effect, for chair to do something really absolutely unprecedented. And then with the pandemic striking very shortly afterwards, you having to push into yet another mode of interacting, another mode of leading, and now you're starting to talk about moving again into a different space. So I'm getting a really strong sense of the sort of kind of fluid and dynamic nature of leadership and interaction with partners, when to be tight, when to be loose, that really finely tuned judgment. And another part of that fluidity is, as you said, I you know, I was worried back in 18, that were our values being eroded at all? And and that would just be uh, disastrous. So one of the first things we did was, as a board, was we set up a values refresh. So we'd had eight values 
And when I went around, I think it was 27 office visits, I asked people, about, you know, what, what were they and what did they mean to them? And, you know, people really only knew three or four of them. So we set up an 18-month program and everyone across the firm got involved. But right at the beginning, to make sure that our partners didn't feel this was dangerous territory because our values are so important to them, I promised them that it would come back to the partnership for a vote. So the whole firm was involved, but with a partner vote at the end. And we, we just needed to make sure that the values were relevant today. And actually, fortuitously, it was great timing because with the pandemic, you know, you have to have values front and center. You know, they've been our North Star all the way through. And so this is what we've been talking about. This is the debate across the firm that we've had for the last 18 months. And then it came back to the partners in January. And again, we had a vote and it was an amazing vote. And that was, you know, we had eight before, we kept three of the legacy values and we brought in two extra ones, which are both very important. Uh, one is the spirit of ownership to keep that fluidity and entrepreneurial spirit. And the other one is embrace difference. And I think at the moment with where we are as societies, you have to be able to embrace different because we're getting such polarized views. And as partnerships, if we haven't got a language to cope with that, so that one's a really important addition. Jill, I just want to go back on the collegiality point and ask you how important the compensation system is to underpin collegiality. I know from my own experience, many of the partners in my old firm would have said it was absolutely key to collegiality. But then we've talked to other firms who say that they are perfectly collegiate without having a lockstep system. Jill, you're speaking in sort of very beautiful, conceptual, inspiring language. And David's coming right back in with, yeah, but what about the money? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, we, we typically say to people, if, if maximising your income is what your goal is, then go somewhere else. We're here for the long term. We hold each other through the ups and the downs. And, you know, it's important to have this sense of fairness, as I said earlier. But we have a lockstep. You can't get to be a partner any faster by having a commercial, you know, success. I, of course, you need to be adding commercial value, but that alone won't allow you to get to partnership in a sharp elbowed way as it might elsewhere. And then when we are partners, you know, you're a five-year seniority partner and you earn the same in terms of what we do with profits as any, any five-year partner anywhere else. And no one can get accelerated up the lockstep. But of course, we can hold people back or we can freeze or cut them. Um, but there's also something in our shareholders agreement which says you can't cut a partner's seniority by more than half in one year. So it's sort of protecting shareholders' interests as well. You know, we don't have to go through what other professional service firms do every year, which is, OK, how much revenues have you all brought? What have you executed? What have you generated? And, and have that tallying. So, it, you know, it does save a lot of stress. Um, and occasionally we lose people because of that. You know, I'd be naive to think we don't. But generally people see that we're stronger together and we serve clients better because the whole basis of the firm is collegiality and collaborating for that. Mm. One of the things one of your partners said about you in the FT article when you were elected was that you represented the humanist side of the firm as opposed to the performance side. Is that true? Does that sound right to you? And if so, why was that important? Well, at a time when 
you know, there were a bit of worries about values versus performance. It was important, but, you know, the work that I do professionally has been about how do you develop CEOs? How do you develop great teams and boards? And so I come from that deeply developmental side of things. So, you know, it's my passion uh, and it's probably where I come from as, as me, Jill. But as a leader, you have to balance them. And this is why the, the language of polarities helps. So we talk about, you know, performance and values. We, you know, it's like power and love, we call it, it's, which is that Adam Cain book, I think. And really, you're trying to say, if there was no heat on either end of that polarity, we've got a problem. And certainly in most speeches that Ed and I do to the partnership, we're talking about the balancing act and those polarities and keeping it live as a language. So I can be tough when needed. And I think, there, you know, <laughs> there was a there was a certain moment in, in the election where I had to be tough. So but it's it's really, you know, your repertoire as a leader has to encompass all of these things. Couldn't agree more. Jill, thank you so much for joining us today. That's been absolutely fantastic. Really, really enjoyed that discussion. Thank you so much. Me too. Thank you both. So, David, what did you find really interesting about that? Well, I was really struck by a couple of things. The first thing was Jill's dedication to the values of the firm. She really kept coming back to them. A lot of chairs talk about values, but not with such a zealous and relentless focus. Uh, at my old firm, A&O, I thought we were pretty big on values, but Jill really took it to a whole other level. I think the second thing that struck me was that I'm not sure I've ever come across a firm which has generosity as a value. I really get that. Actually, I really like that because the idea is that the more you have, the more generous you should be with your colleagues. And I was reminded of a quote from Maynard Keynes. He once said that if you have to choose between two alternative courses of action, either of which are more or less much of a muchness, then choose the one that's most generous. Yeah. And remember, we're not talking about a monastic order or even a lockstep law firm, but a group of headhunters. I mean, Egon Zender's very public commitment to these norms of reciprocity is one of the key ways in which they distinguish themselves from their competitors. And I was really interested in the way you kept bringing it back to the profit-sharing system. Jill wanted to talk about values, and you kept bringing it back to money. Well, that's because I was really interested to try and understand how important the lockstep was to the collegiality that she talked about. How critical a factor was it? in the ethos of Egon Zender. Although, you know, the interesting point was that when we interviewed Kirsten Edwards Warren for episode six of the last series, it turned out that her firm, Compass Lexicon, was also a very collegiate culture, but there the rewards were totally based on individual contributions. So I was interested in the contrast. Yes, I mean, rewards are important when it comes to collegiality, but, but they aren't enough. You, you also need these informal cultural controls that sit alongside the formal systems to really make it work, which is why Jill's discussion of feedback was actually also really interesting. Yes, that phrase, candor with care, really had a bite to it, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and I think it's easier to have difficult conversations if you have an unshakable belief in the importance of upholding the values of the community. Because in that case, it's not an awkward conversation between two individuals, but it's an opportunity to reassert the power of the collective. Yeah, I thought Jill's language was very warm and sort of quite abstract in a way. But I, for one, was left in no doubt that there was an underlying steel in what she said. I mean, just at the end, I think she said that it was enshrined in their partnership documents. 
that you can't have your seniority or compensation cut by more than half in a single year. And I was sitting there thinking, blimey, that means you can have your compensation cut by up to half in any one year. She, well, she actually said your seniority. So it's possibly not quite as harsh as that, but it's nevertheless, it's a significant signal. Um because I think it's important. I mean, 99% voted to retain lockstep, 99% of the partners. But when your lockstep is highly modified, as that potentially is, is it really a lockstep system? But then I think the question is, in a sense, it doesn't really matter how it actually works in practice, because lockstep can still be seen as this, this really powerful cultural icon. It's a symbol that you can all collectively believe in and pay homage to. Okay, so... To answer our question about what is collegiality and how does it work, I think you're still saying, Laura, that collegiality is the combination of three things, mutual support, equality among peers and cultural control. Yes. And I don't know if you noticed, but Jill didn't really say that much about equality amongst peers. I always find it interesting when senior partners talk to me about wanting their colleagues to be more collegial. Sometimes I need to remind them that there is this third inconvenient element of collegiality, which is about allowing your partners quite a lot of power as well. Okay, so in terms of the second part of our question, how collegiality works in practice, in the case of Egon Zender at least, I think it starts with uh, an almost cult-like devotion to collegiality as a value. Well, and beyond that also, though, being really clear-eyed about what they refer to as the values performance polarity and the this con uh, mobilizing this concept of generosity as a way of trying to reconcile these polarities yeah but if necessary being prepared to take off the velvet gloves and reveal an iron fist yeah so collegiality really isn't so warm and cuddly after all well that's all for today's episode thanks for listening and thanks again to Jill Ada for joining us today we look forward to you joining us next time and please remember to subscribe, rate and review Leading Professional People wherever you get your podcasts.